Hi Europe and beyond. Thanks everyone for the support you showed the inaugural episode of the EPOS podcast. Today's launch, again, is brought to you by the EPOS website committee, who through their enthusiasm have made this second episode come to life. Seems like yesterday we were in Krakow for the annual conference, but time goes by so fast. Here we are in July, with the sun to guide us for a great summer of pediatric fractures. Here we go. Hello everyone, welcome. In this podcast, we will speak with the winners of the best papers of our last EPOS meeting in Krakow. First up is the best basic science paper titled Investigation of Local and Systemic Response of Degrading Magnesium-Based Implants. Primary author, Dr. Begum Okutan. Uh, Dr. Begum Okutan is a Uh, presently working at the Medical University of Graz at the Department of Orthopedics and Traumatology, and she has just completed her uh, PhD uh, within EU Marie Curie uh, project. Um, well, I think the first question would be, Dr. Okutan, would, uh, what interested you in this topic? I mean, I imagine you just don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to investigate biodegradable implants. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I basically studied the genetics and uh, bioengineering. And during the lab visit, I really um, interested uh, the tissue engineering field uh, to produce scaffolds, uh, the implants and so on. And then I found myself in the tissue engineering laboratory uh, and do my internship in there, do my bachelor and master thesis in there. But basically I worked on the polymer-based scaffolds And, uh, but it's uh, known that the, these applications for polymers, it's really limited in the clinics. So for the next, for my PhD, I decided to work on more the biodegradable metals, um, where the, I can, um, in this area, then I can help really the people uh, and I can see the real results in the clinic at the end. Great. So that's my motivation. <laughs> Great. Uh, how long have you been uh, investigating in this field? Um, yeah, for magnesium-based implants, I was working uh, on my project approximately four years. Great. Wow, exciting. That's a quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, in this paper, you talk about uh, magnesium-based implants and their effects when they're degrading. Uh, what are these effects? Yeah, so in my study, uh, briefly, I used two different type of uh, magnesium-based implants. One is ultra-purified magnesium, and the other one is the uh, magnesium-zinc-calcium alloy. Uh, basically, it's produced, again, from the uh, ultra-purified magnesium, one part of the yeah, metal um, yeah, taken and alloyed with zinc and calcium to improve the degradation properties. And uh, at the end, both implant types uh, showed uh, better osteointegration uh, and they promote uh, newborn tissue formation and also stimulate the um, uh, red bone marrow stromal cell differentiation to osteoblasts 
in my study, especially in the first two weeks. Um, and uh, when I checked the uh, systemic effects, uh, both implant types had uh, no negative uh, effects on the many different tissues, for example, uh, liver, kidney, or spleen. Uh, throughout my study period, which was uh, six months. Um, so uh, briefly, the especially for the magnesium zinc calcium is developed uh, for uh, especially for children and it's a health implant without any additives uh, which are not resorbed like um, not resorbed like rare earth elements. So it is more favorable mm -hmm. than ultra purified uh, magnesium since it has lower, slower degradation rates and also the moderate cost accumulation compared to uh, ultra-purified one. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, and what about the, the rest of the alloys? Because we're, we're talking about just uh, these three, uh, especially magnesium, but what about the rest of the alloys? What happens to them when they degrade? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, basically the degradation process is highly depending on the alloy type, what kind of elements, uh, yeah be used or the surface properties of the metals, uh, yeah, the materials. Um, and there are other effects, of course, the minor effects uh, also um, compared to this uh, can also affect the degradation properties um, such as impurities, um, microstructure and the manufacturing process. So if I give, yeah, I can give one example, basically uh, my study. So the even though the magnesium is ultra purified, so means that uh, get rid of the, all of these impurities. So mm -hmm. it, it has a better uh, degradation rate compared to uh, only pure ones. But when uh, we add the zinc and calcium, we have better uh, slower degradation rates. So corrosion resistant is better. So it's, yeah. It's really depending on the alloy type and the, at mm -hmm. the end of the microstructure. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. But I, I also have read that there are other materials, you know, that can be added to the alloys, uh, uh, like manganese. Uh, what do you think about uh, manganese? Yeah, it's it's also, um, yeah, it's also high topic and it's also investigated by many researchers. And um, and it's also manganese uh, has been shown uh, beneficial effects uh, to the bone and the surrounding tissue uh, during the resorption uh, or the degradation process, since it's an essential trace element also for us and it takes parts in uh, many bio um, yeah chemical reaction and it's a cofactor in for many enzymes and it takes again the part in many um, yeah carbohydrate uh, lipid and amino acid metabolism so it has really a good yeah beneficial effects but the concentration uh, should be yeah it should be uh, we should be careful about the concentration mm -hmm. for manganese yeah. So you have to use it in very uh, 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 manganese. You have to use, use in very little uh, amounts, correct? And uh, yes. it, it, it controls the degradation of the uh, of the other implants. Is that it? Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? Yes, uh, the manganese also controls the degradation of the uh, other alloys. Ah, uh, yes, it's also a um, uh, another beneficial effect in terms of the degradation rates because it's also improved the. Mechanical properties and the corrosion resistance of uh, magnesium-based alloys. So at the end, it can also be used to reduce and uh, control the degradation rates. Yeah, for sure, like zinc and calcium and strontium. Uh, strontium yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Great and a very detailed work. Uh, well done, actually. And I can ask you uh, that the, are there any other alloys that has been currently being investigated in this field? Um, yes, uh, in for magnesium-based uh, implants, yeah, there are many different alloys. Um, yeah, I mentioned already the zinc calcium, and yeah, we talk also manganese, but there are also uh, silver, uh, zirconium, uh, strontium, and also rare earth elements. Yeah, they can be alloyed with magnesium and can be used as yeah biodegradable uh, metals. Mm -hmm. And okay, so we we're talking about all these uh, different alloys and uh, um, what, like for example, what manganese can bring to this alloys. You know the properties they have. Um, if you could choose, okay, um, the ideal alloy with the the, the uh, not thinking about any any uh, of the elements right now, the ideal alloy for you uh, to to be able to to um, you know for biocompatibility and everything. What properties uh, should this have? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. For for sure, the biocompatibility is the most required one. Uh, it should perform the appropriate uh, host response, not to be cytotoxic or not stimulate any foreign body response, which is really important. And the other one is the sufficient uh, mechanical properties, because during the bone healing uh, or the uh, the other tissue. Um, doesn't uh, matter. It's we need the me mechanical integrity. We need a time, um, and that's why it's uh, the implants remain uh, its me mechanical integrity until the bone or the other tissues heals. And it should also work. The implants work under different type of forces. So the mechanical properties is also another um, hallmark, the most required one to for the ideal alloy. Yeah, and the other properties uh, can be designed depending on the implantation uh, site or the purpose of the implants also, and depending on the patient's situation, basically. So you would have like a, a different type of implants for children as opposed to adults? Um, yeah, for example, the for the children, uh, we need for sure the biodegradables one uh, more than the elder people uh, because the permanent ones can uh, interrupt the bone growth and eventually we remove it, right? So for the biodegradable ones, uh, most yeah beneficial for most of the children. So it should be, yeah, this kind of application it depends on the patients or yeah, implantation mm -hmm. site also important. Great, fantastic. Well, that's really, really amazing work. Uh... Um, I uh, encourage you, uh, hope this uh, uh, prize uh, makes encourages you to keep uh, studying in this field and advancing in this field. And um, I have nothing more, much more to add to this. Uh, um, Dr. Dahl, do you have any other questions? No, no, I don't have any questions, but congratulations for the prize. Uh, and also, um, well done with the work and we're waiting uh, for the uh, for your future uh, studies, uh, and I wish, I hope you will continue such uh, detailed uh, studies in the future too. Thank you very much. Thank you too. You're, You're very <laughs> welcome. All right, everyone. That is uh, Dr. Bego Mokutan, our first uh, uh, guest on this uh, new podcast we are uh, mm -hmm. we are doing, and uh, hope you'll stick with us for the rest of the interviews. Thank you very much.
Moving right along, we had a paper titled Validation of the Patient-Parent Reported Outcome Measure of Fracture Healing, Proof UE, Questionnaire for Upper Extremity Fractures in Children. Author and presenter, Dr. Uni Narayanan. He is a pediatric orthopedic surgeon at the Hospital for Sick Kids uh, and professor in the Departments of uh, Surgery and Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto. He is a senior associate scientist in the Kids Health Evaluative Sciences Program of the Research Institute at Sick Kids, And he is also, that's why he is here today, uh, one of the winners of the best papers in their past uh, EPOS meeting in Krakow. Uh, welcome, Dr. Narayanan. Thank you, Dr. Downey. Can I call you Javier? Yes, that, that's fine. Okay, thank you for that kind invitation. I'm, I'm honored to be interviewed. Great. So, um, uh, your paper uh, focuses on uh, uh, PROMS, actually the, the proof uh, upper extremity. Uh, we know you have been involved in these for quite some time, as we have mentioned earlier. Uh, what interested you in this area of work? I, I think the first um, inkling I got into this area was during my residency I uh, at the University of Minnesota. I was doing a rotation in, in pediatric orthopedics at uh, Gillette uh, Children's Hospital. My mentor was Jim Gage. Uh, um, the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine had their annual meeting. I think this was in 1986. Uh, uh, that was uh, 1996. That was hosted at, uh, uh, at uh, in Minneapolis that I attended, and the theme for that meeting was outcomes. Um, and at the time, this was a relatively new word, and certainly for orthopedics, uh, the notion of uh, measuring how effective our treatments are based on, on outcomes that are reported by patients was relatively new. The language of evidence-based uh, medicine was uh, becoming increasingly uh, uh, clearer and louder. Um, so the timing was right, and it piqued my interest, and um, subsequently, when I went to Toronto for my fellowship in, in 98. I stayed on to do a, a master's degree in clinical epidemiology at the University of Toronto, uh, where my thesis was based on um, exploring um, um, outcomes measurement in children in particular. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and that work sort of continued uh, when I started my practice and my academic career. So you just carried on from, uh, from what, your work that you started in... Uh in 98. That's right, yes. Oh, so you have been investigating for this quite some time. <laughs> yes, I think uh, my, my thesis uh, for my my master's degree, which was for, uh, in 1999 to 2001, uh, was looking at the, uh, the population of adolescents with idiopathic scoliosis. It's a population that I don't work with right now, uh, mm -hmm. but I was interested in understanding what their concerns, desires, and expectations were living with a condition that uh, um, uh, they were, and to compare their perspectives from those of their parents and uh, and their surgeons. And not surprisingly, there were a huge contrasts in how they think of themselves and how parents think of them and, and how surgeons think of them. And that led to uh, the creation of a, of a framework to understand patient priorities, which then became the basis of the uh, subsequent work that I've done to develop patient report outcome measures for various uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we tend to, you know, obviate the, you know, or ask the kids how they're doing, what they feel and all that. 
and we just tend to see what the parents or the families uh, tell us, you know. And um, uh, but now that you've been doing this for quite some time, how do you think proms uh, will be changing the way we treat our patients? Yeah, as you as you pointed out, we, you know we do this naturally in our clinics. That's those are the first questions we ask our patients: How are they doing? Um, but we we ask those questions very briefly. Uh, once we find out they're doing well, we stop there very quickly because you know that's that's all we need to know. On the other hand, if they're not doing so very well, it requires a little bit for further exploration. What PROMS do is allow you to uh, ask these questions in a standardized way, much more comprehensively, um, and, and uh, assuming that they've been developed appropriately and include content that's really relevant and important to the population, then they can be really uh, incredibly useful. Now, primarily, they've been used for the purpose of research. So it becomes the metric by which we measure effectiveness beyond, you know, our conventional methods of using radiographs or, or you know, clinical assessments like ranges of motion and so on. All of those things are important, uh, but ultimately the impact on the patient and on the parent is what really matters the most. And that's what PROMS allow us to, 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 to capture. But I think you've raised an important question. I mean, it's great for research. It's great to tell us, okay, treatment A is better than or as good as treatment B um, based on the patient perspective. But how does it actually um, you know, change the way we treat, uh, treat patients? And I think it, that can happen in two ways. One is when we do clinical research like clinical trials, uh, we should be ensuring that the outcomes uh, measurement that we're using are good uh, well-developed and validated patient report outcome measures. Mm -hmm. And so the evidence generated from that can then guide us to really make decisions about which treatments uh, work most effectively. So that's one way. That's the sort of the more obvious way. Mm -hmm. More recently, I've become interested in, in finding out whether the use of PROMS can actually be of value to patients in the course of their clinical care. Because right now, when a child or a parent completes a PROM, they really... Uh, there's nothing in it for them. It's a chore. You know, it can take 10 minutes to 20 minutes. And they're doing it uh, for no observable benefit for themselves. Uh, it's great for research and they're doing it as a favor for us. But how can we actually leverage these measures to make them useful to those kids? And I think uh, that's sort of the new frontier. Mm -hmm. um, and and uh, I'm happy to talk more about that. And and. Yeah. and Proof, and the proof questionnaire, I think, uh, is a potential example of that. Yeah. So we're, we're just at the beginning of these uh, prompts because there have been many developed already for adults, uh, but not for children. So we're just at, at, at right at the tip of the iceberg, correct? Yes, I think we're, we're doing much uh, better than we were at, you know, 20 years ago. There are actually numerous uh, well-developed patient report measures for children, not necessarily uh in the area of musculoskeletal health. I think that's that's where we've lagged. Uh, but mm -hmm. I think in the last uh, uh, 10 or 15 years, we've we've seen quite a few uh, measures uh, um, either in development or that have been adopted. Um, mm -hmm. for, you know, our work is uh, focused initially on cerebral palsy, both non-ambulatory and ambulatory cerebral palsy, mm -hmm. on muscular dystrophy, on lower limb deformity. Uh, and 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 now on 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 fractures, and there are many other um, uh, 
um, measurements that are available for children that are generic health fair quality of life measures. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's it's they're, they're certainly how, out there. So how difficult the right is it is it to develop a, a prom for it for children? Because of course, um, uh, level of education in adults would be a, a hindrance, you know. But uh, for children, it's more level of comprehension, isn't it? Yes, I think there's there's a it's a there's a whole science um, that underpins the development of, of outcome measures in general. I mean, the first and foremost, it is uh, understanding from the patient or the parent, and when the patients are too young to ask them ask them those questions, uh, to understand what their lived experience is. What is it living with a particular condition? Um, and from that lived experience, what is it that matters to them? What are the, their concerns, both with the present and what they think the future might hold for them? You know, what are their uh, expectations? What is it that they want to be different? Um, those mm -hmm. I, I collectively call priorities. And, and the way you determine that is through qualitative research that involves various different kinds of methods that involve interviews, uh, but there are different techniques uh, that have been developed uh, to, you know, uh, elicit this information in a rigorous way. And mm -hmm. that uh, that then informs the creation of a bank or a list of items that capture all of those priorities that then have to be put together into, in, into questions that are understandable uh, to the patient or to the parent in language that they can interpret uh, consistently and easily. Uh, and then you've got to create scales that go with those questions uh, you put those together and it's an iterative process. You've got to go back to patients and parents, find out if this makes sense to them, that it uh, that they can relate to it, that it actually captures what's important to them. Uh, and then you go back to healthcare professionals, people like us to say what's missing. You know, does this make sense to us as well? Um, it is important to get that perspective as well. You know, and it's only after that you then... Uh, have a draft version of, of of a prom that then has to undergo extensive uh, psychometric evaluation for all the various properties of any measurement tool, whether it's a weighing mm -hmm. scale or a, um, you know, or a, um, or a prom. It has to okay. be reliable. It has to be valid, and so on. And and so it's it's a, it's a long process. It can take a, a few years from start to finish. So this uh, new one that you reported on in this paper. Uh, you report on the validity of the, of the proof upper extremity, which is a, a prom that's designed for uh, specifically for children's upper extremity fractures. Uh, what conclusions did you arrive at, at this with this uh, prom? Yes. Um, well, we had previously shown that it was sensible. In other words, uh, parents and children who uh, evaluated it uh, from uh, a large sample of those and healthcare professionals around the world were experts in managing pediatric factors, all uh, felt that the content uh, was appropriate, that it was comprehensive, comprehensible, uh, that there was no missing items, uh, that it was feasible. So that's a sensibility. So we, we, we've done this work to show that it, it, was, it had face and content validity. What this particular paper focused on was assessing its uh, psychometric properties. So we showed that when uh, measured at two different time points that were separated by uh, one or two weeks, when one would not expect a change in the status of the patient, that you got the same answers on both occasions, both for children's responses as well as for parents' responses. Because as a child, 
and parents' version of the proof. So that's the that is the property of test retest reliability. Uh, we mm -hmm. demonstrated very strong uh, internal consistency, which is another property of reliability. And then we compared uh, a group of kids uh, fractures that were deemed to be complicated. They needed open reductions. There were neurologic or vascular injuries associated with them, or there was some complication associated with injury. Mm -hmm. And we compared that group of scores with those that had no complications and showed that the proof was able to distinguish the two groups. Obviously, this, the group with complications scored worse. Uh, again, providing us some assurance that this is uh, uh, working in the way one would expect it to work. Mm -hmm. And is it Your usual for patients uh, and parents' scores to correlate? How, you know, yes, uh, we did compare children's scores from, from parents' scores uh, because the, only, the children who can complete this question tend to be around eight and, and older. So for children who are younger than eight, we need a parent or a proxy version. And for children older than eight, you know, we need a parent version as well because parents might have a, a slightly different perspective that is that is not uh, something we can we can we can ignore. So we compared that uh, when we had scores for both children and parents, and we had that for a large number, we compared their scores and they were remarkably similar, which is a surprise. That went against our hypothesis. We knew that there would be a correlation or we'd expected a, a good, strong correlation. We found mm -hmm. that. But in most studies that have compared children's scores with parents' scores, parents consistently report their children's outcomes as worse than children's report themselves. Um, in, in this particular case, uh, that difference was negligible. Yes, the parents' scores were slightly lower, but, you know, that was yeah. within, uh, I think, you know, could be sub, uh, just arbitrary or ran random. Um, mm -hmm. That was a surprise. Um, and I, I, I think our explanation is for chronic conditions, children... Uh, rate themselves in a in a way because they know no different. That's their baseline. Whereas parents are rating them based on some comparison to perhaps that child's siblings or uh, to or friends uh, to other no? and, uh, and their own sort of standards. Mm -hmm. uh, so why didn't we find that in this particular circumstance? I think because this is an acute condition. Uh, this is an mm -hmm. acute condition that's temporary. Children are expected to recover and come back to their baseline. And we were testing reliability at a time when the fractures had healed. So, you know, when you now think about it, you can see that once once they'd gone back to a baseline, those scores were not that different between children and and their parents. Uh -huh. So that that would be the explanation, okay? And um, yeah. Uh, so as we, I saw that uh, you have are working on many, many, many proms, and you had worked on, and you're working on many more. Um, would you mind telling us what proms you're cooking up right now? Well, the the, the ones that are well established are the ones for cerebral palsy, the CP child for non-ambulatory cerebral palsy, and the goal questionnaire for um, uh, ambulatory cerebral palsy. Um, we have uh, recently published the goal LD, which is the uh, developed specific for lower limb deformity, which uh, uh, was the uh, uh, thesis of one of my graduate students. Uh, this has been uh, now validated uh, in in uh, Australia, the United States, and Canada in a multi-center study. Um, the MD child uh, we developed for muscular dystrophy and other neuromuscular conditions. Um, we've got the proof lower extremity as well for lower extremity fractures that oh, okay. um, we are currently um, 
uh, completing the validation of. And then um, we've got a new measure called the CP checklist. Um, it's not really a prom. Um, it is a checklist of comorbidities that children with severe cerebral palsy and cerebral palsy-like conditions have, um, which collects uh, the presence and severity of various comorbidities in a, in a standardized way, which can be very helpful for clinical purposes. But um, in terms of preparing someone who's going to have spine surgery for a neuromuscular scoliosis or hip reconstruction and so on. So the anesthetist would like to know this. Pediatricians want to know. Family doctors want to know. We should know about their other health conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, we developed it also to serve as a standardized way that can be a comorbidity index to adjust uh, for the presence or absence of these comorbidities when you're doing uh, research on these populations. Uh, because we know these comorbidities have an impact on health related quality of life. Um, mm -hmm. And if we don't take these into account, uh, any changes that we see in uh, health related quality of life measures uh, could be attributed to uh, these comorbidities. And so you really have to take into them into account. And yeah. uh, we are uh, come up with a standardized way of doing that. Great. That is that is a very, very interesting. It's, wow. Exciting. Uh, so um, I have no further questions. Uh, I'd just like to thank you for, for joining us on this uh, podcast. You are our second uh, interview interviewee. So um, we're very happy. And uh, thank you very much. And this is, this is all, folks. Thank you, Javier. I, it was an honor to do this. I'm, I'm grateful for the uh, award as well. So thank you. Next up, we have the winner of the best poster. Unfortunately, after numerous attempts on our behalf, uh, we were not able to get in touch with the authors to have them for the interview. Uh, they were David Kant and Christian Fagerman from the University of Odense Hospital in Denmark, who um, presented the paper, The Incidence of Physial Fractures in the Lower Limb and the Frequency of Premature Physial Closure, a cohort of 236 patients. This is a study done at the University of Southern Denmark in Odense. Um, so uh, what we will do is uh, just, uh, we will comment on this. And uh, for this, we have uh, Darius Rad and Ozan Erdal. Um, and um, just Darius, quickly, um, what, would, what was your uh, gathering of uh, this, uh, this, uh, this study, this paper that was presented? Uh, thanks a lot, Javi. It's really good to see you uh, set up this uh, second podcast for EPOS. Amazing work. Thank you very much for your effort. Um, it's a great topic, and I'm not surprised it was uh, uh, presented with this prize uh, for the best e-poster because it does um, highlight one of the uh, topics of pediatric trauma that we uh, have to uh, play with uh, in our practice quite a lot of and uh, um, support the consequences of uh, these injuries and particularly mm -hmm. uh, I like the fact that they they covered quite a lot of uh, time uh, approximately uh, seven years I believe and uh, quite a lot of numbers you know 236 and um, we we did pick up on and by reading it I, I picked up lots of most of the injuries that were um, that had to be managed uh, surgically 
where uh, the distal uh, or, or in the tibia, whether it's proximal or distal tibia. And I know from my practice, the, the one injury that I'm always sort of uh, wary and uh, concerned about are the Salter Harris type four fractures of the distal tibia, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially the young young children, trampoline injuries. And now this is the perfect time, you know, in the summer jumping around uh, on the trampolines. And they do have lots of, uh, you know, initially they might look uh, benign and not have any um, concerns. However, after fixing them, you have to watch them like a hawk because lots of the times these injuries will develop physial bridges and subsequent deformities, which can be easily managed uh, through a physial uh, bar excision uh, epiphyllesis, mm -hmm. the Langerskill procedure, which works, which works quite well in practice. But uh, this is what we're talking about purely uh, distal tibia. However, you know the distal femur. I saw that they had a patients that they presented, which is more uh, high energy type injury. Uh, mm -hmm. You know fractures, sutures twos and threes, and they will have incidence of, um, however more rare in terms of presentation they will be definitely something that will uh, an injury that will present with the physical bar on and will be more difficult to correct uh, and excise because sometimes you know associated yeah. with yeah. distal femur you have more in high energy injuries and subsequent uh, uh, bigger yeah. physical mm -hmm. bars that will be more difficult to excise yeah of course uh, of course what did you uh, think about uh, uh, Orzan about the the management of these, and you think uh, in your practice in Turkey it's something that you come across quite often. Yeah, we see a lot of patients, especially in summer season, uh, especially about the physical injuries around the knee joint and also the ankle joint. And yeah, uh, after especially when we deal uh, with those injuries and with displacement more than two or three millimeters. Uh, when we decide about the surgical treatments, yes, we can do it uh, very well, even though we can do it very well. Uh, we should follow the patients about the limb length discrepancies or any angular deformities uh, because there is a high percentage of uh, injury of the feces and yeah. uh, some uh, premature physio closures. So they mentioned uh, they uh, studied the incidence of the uh, physio injuries and their uh, deformity and LLD uh, incidences or rates uh, among their population in the study. Uh, they recently published their uh, results in uh, Acto Orthopedica Scandinavia and uh, in June issue 2023. Um, the study was uh, done in a population of about uh, 500,000 pe uh, people uh, in an island called, the name of the island is the uh, Funen in the region of southern Denmark. It was a, a for a cross-sectional study, I think it is a quite nice advantage. And uh, there, there, is only, there are only two emergency departments dealing with pediatric trauma in that region. They, they say so. So they uh, retrospectively uh, studied the patients uh, with physical injuries, uh, they ended up with 236 uh, patients. Uh, in that population, 
according to their statistics in 2020, there was about 83,000 children between ages of newborn to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice uh, incidence rate study also, in as well as the uh, incidence, uh, as well as the study on rates of uh, LLD and angular deformities after the physical injuries. It was an mm -hmm. advantage geographically, also, of course, and also very well archived system in those mm -hmm. Yeah, they did a pretty big number of, uh, uh, had pretty big numbers, 236 children in seven years. That's, uh, that's a lot of, a lot of fractures, you know? And, what uh, I noticed, uh, from, from their numbers is, um, like Orzan pointed out is the angular deformity was mostly the main concern. And I agree with that. Uh, it's uh, like the discrepancy is something that doesn't really affect them. Um, especially in the in 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 the distal tibia, uh, distal femur, but it's mm -hmm. it's mostly angular deformities that we need to watch out for, and the fact that they uh, displayed that the kind of uh, displacement of three or more uh, millimeters was the factor that um, was consistent with uh, growth disturbance, uh, and the last thing that was a little bit uh, interesting, and I'm not really sure maybe. Maybe you could uh, help me out with this. Uh, only forty-two point four percent of the cohort participate in the growth evaluation. Is that out of the two hundred and thirty-six, or? Uh, yes, I can say about something about that. Uh, when they, uh, um, when an orthopedic surgeon, uh, in the article, they mentioned that when an orthopedic surgeon who is following the patient suspects of a physical injury or premature physical closure, they sent the patient to a, a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. That's why those patients who were suspected of uh, premature physical closure are those patients who were evaluated for the growth uh, disturbances. It's about 42% of the all 236 patients, which is about uh, 100 children. So that would be a little bit of like... Uh... Um, obviously, uh, the, the the authors are not present in this uh, um, recording, but I'm just thinking about whether in their inclusion and exclusion criteria, they could have excluded potentially those that did not need uh, follow-up, that didn't have a problem, and ultimately that number of patients out of the 236 would have been um, halved. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, ultimately, they say that only about a hundred were were um, um, brought in for growth evaluation. So that's less than half of the two hundred thirty-six that had physio fractures. Only one hundred were brought in for growth evaluation. And surgery, one hundred, yeah, only one hundred, yeah, received a. a, a growth evaluation, growth disturbance evaluation, and only 10% of overall 236 mm -hmm. patients uh, were uh, diagnosed uh, either radiographically or with CT scan with a premature uh, physical closure together with LLD or angular uh, deformity. Yes, the total number of uh, patients that had growth disturbance was 23. So that's yeah. just under 10%. Uh, mm -hmm. all of the uh, all of the uh, injuries mm -hmm. uh, 
Hey, yeah, Rachel, so I think the, the, the conclusions that they draw, uh, I think, are pretty consistent with what uh, we have always uh, learned and always uh, uh, see in other studies, no? that it's very important to have a consistent and uniform growth evaluation after physio fractures to detect these problems, right? Yeah. They haven't uh, particularly identified the risk of growth arrest, physio bridge, so growth disturbance for each Salter-Harris classification, which would have been nice. Uh, for example, the distal tibia, uh, in my experience, is always 100% Salter-Harris 4 uh, to develop a, a growth rest. And I think, but globally, you know, what you want to tell the parents in an informed consent, uh, they're going to ask you what is the, you have to mention overall in these injuries, there's a 10%, just under 10%, risk of of growth disturbance yeah yeah so it's pretty interesting studies a shame that uh we can have the authors here to comment a little bit more on and get more insight on that but uh i would like to thank you both uh for participating and helping me out on this and so we can uh, put this podcast out um ozan uh dr Adal, thank you very much uh, dr red thank you very much Well, we have reached the end of this podcast. I would like to thank the authors, Dr. Okutan and Dr. Narayanan for participating and you for listening. Hope you will tune in for our next podcast. Till then, have a wonderful summer.